Today's scripture is from Luke 16. Start at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to there, here to you, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Good morning. Good morning. I have to say, this week was easy. I was ready on Sunday of last week. It was good. I had no trouble with this one. Hopefully it will communicate. So let me just get my stuff out here. just in case. Okay, so everybody knows what this is, right? What is it? A cup, right? It's a cup. And what do you do with a cup? You put something in it to drink, right? So if I put some water in here, I have water I could drink. Well, let's say I don't want to drink it all right now, but I also don't want it to spill. What could I do with it besides drink it all right now? I could pour it out. I could use it, freeze it, put a cover on it. Good idea. I just happen to have a cover right here. And that's a pretty good handy-dandy cover. Pretty much doesn't spill. Doesn't spill. Good job, right? Well... This is a great idea, especially for little kids, because they can leave it lay and it doesn't spill. Now, let's say I decide I want to put some more water in here. I can do that, right? Oops. It doesn't work too well. You have to take the lid off, right? If I take the lid off, 
I can put more in here. Yeah? And the other thing I can do is I can share it. I can pour some out, right? That made me think about the story for today. The rich man. I didn't have a purple cup. I had a green one. Purple and green are complementary colors. So just imagine this is purple. Okay, this is our rich man. He's got his life full of good stuff. But he doesn't want to lose any of it. So he's got that lid on. Good and tight. So good and tight that even Lazarus can't get any scraps. There's nothing. The problem is, when that man's time was up, what happened? Yeah. And he couldn't get what he needed. He couldn't get that drop of cold water because it doesn't go in. The other problem he had was he said, okay, all right, I messed up. I, I get that. I blew it completely. But let me send a message to my brothers. But nothing can come out either. It was too late for them. God didn't design us to be this way. God designed us to be lid-free so that our blessings can be shared with others and refilled on a daily basis. The more we give, the more he fills. We have an amazing God. Be a sippy cup without the lid. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have blessed us in so, so, so many ways. Help us not to hoard those blessings. We know that the more we give, the more you will bless us. So let us not be like that rich man who just kept the lid on everything and hoarded it for himself. But help us to share generously so that others can be filled with your love. And the more we give, Lord, we know the more you will fill us to the point of overflowing. So we thank you for that, and we thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please be with me today as I present your word. Please help me to speak your words and not mine. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Jen's husband, Paul. I'm a deacon here at the church. Uh, the last time I gave a message, it was before Easter. And we talked about leaven. You remember when I said that while putting the message together, I got out my Bible shovel and I started digging? Because that's how you find Bible gold. Well, today I brought a different tool. Does anyone here ice fish? Can you tell me what these are? No guesses? These are, these are called safety picks. And see, they pull apart like this, and they get a little spike on the end of them. So you wear them around your neck when you go out on the ice. So when I ice fish, I'm a big baby uh, because I need four inches of ice or more to be safe, or I'm not going out there. 
If it's early in the season, I'll head for the side of the pond that's in the shade where the ice is thickest. I'll take a few steps out and I'll pop a test hole with the auger. If I have four inches, I'll go a ways further and I'll pop another hole. If I reach a point where the ice is thinning out, I stop and I move back. Even so, because ice is unpredictable, I keep these safety picks around my neck. If I fall through, I grab them and I use, use them to pull myself back onto the ice. Well, when I started looking at today's message, I thought I could fish up some good info on heaven and hell. As I get out there, though, I could see that the ice was getting thinner. And there are many different interpretations of what the afterlife looks like. It turns out that people have been arguing about what happens after we die for as long as people have been dying. Heaven, paradise, the bosom of Abraham, purgatory, limbo, Sheol, Hades, Gehenna. And then there's the isms, Augustinianism, conditionalism, annihilationism, Christian universalism, Swedenborgianism, whatever that is. Everywhere I popped a hole, there was only an inch or two of ice. I certainly didn't want to fall through this doctrinal ice and have to use my Bible safety picks to get out. I'd be cold and wet and have to go home. So I'm moving back to where the ice is thicker, a place where all of these doctrines can coexist, and that is when we die, we can be with God and the people of God, or we can be separated from God and his people. A good visual of this can be found in the Old Testament in the way that the tabernacle was set up. Everything went from most pure to least, starting with the Holy of Holies, which contained the Ark of the Covenant and was where God was. Then there was the holy place, and only the priests were allowed there. Outside the holy place was the courtyard, where God's people would gather to hang out with him after they had presented their offerings and had cleansed themselves. The temple was then surrounded by the encampments of the twelve tribes of Israel, where the people lived. And then there was everything else, which was considered outside the camp. In Jewish law, there were many ways you could defile yourself that made you unclean for a period of time. And while you were unclean, you weren't allowed to go to the temple to be around God. Then there were the really bad ones that required that you be sent outside the camp. Notice that these are the things that could infect others spiritually or physically if you stayed. If you had leprosy outside the camp until you could prove that you were cured, touch a dead body outside the camp, unusual bodily discharges outside the camp, Blaspheme God, and you were taken outside the camp and stoned. The remains of the sin offering were burned outside the camp, a symbol of Jesus' sacrifice to us. God is holy and pure, and his people need to be holy and pure if they're going to be around him. Leviticus 20.26 20, says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Outside the camp represented chaos. All kinds of bad could happen out there. There were bandits and wild animals. You were on your own. It was not a safe place. So let's look at these characters in our parable, the rich man and Lazarus, one who was in the camp 
and one who is outside. You remember last week when Pastor Jen said uh, sometimes she'll see something new in a scripture that she's read many times and it drops her through a wormhole into a different understanding of it? Well, Lazarus is the only person in all of Jesus' parables who is referred to by a proper name. And Jesus may have a very good reason for that. The name Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Eliezer. It means God my helper, or God has helped. Eliezer is a name used a few times in the Old Testament, but he first appears as Eliezer of Damascus in Genesis 15.2, as Abraham's most trusted servant, the one who Abraham thinks will be his heir since he is old and God has not yet given him a son. God had a different plan and gave him Isaac, but the trusted servant appears again when Abraham sends him to bring Rebekah back as Isaac's wife. But then Eliezer shows up in another ancient Jewish text, not the canonical Bible, but the Babylonian Talmud, which is the written collection of Jewish oral traditions and rabbinical writings that were passed down through the centuries. The Pharisees and Jesus would have studied all of these stories. Some were about Sodom, and some tell what happens to Eliezer when he travels there to see Abraham's cousin, Lot. Sodom was a rich city. It was on the Jordan River, well-watered like the Garden of the Lord, says Genesis 13.10. So never a shortage of food. They could grow everything they needed. It was the original gated community, the Malibu of the Middle East. They were well-to-do, self-sufficient, and they wanted to keep it that way. The people did not want any riffraff wandering around to spoil their view. And Eliezer, in several stories, witnessed their corrupt judges, their cruelty, and their torture of the poor and those who were traveling. There was no such thing as a homeless problem in Sodom. Giving food to beggars was punishable by death. So if a poor beggar came to town, the rich would make a big show of welcoming him and giving him coins of gold and silver that had their mark on them. The beggar wasn't in on the joke until he tried to buy food and no one would accept the money. When the beggar finally died of starvation, the rich would come and take back their coins to give to the next beggar. The coins were marked so they'd know whose was whose. There are at least a half dozen stories about this sociopathic place. The ones with Eliezer tell how he's able to outsmart them and make it out alive. God lays out the character of Sodom when he says to Israel in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and complacent. They did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I remove them as you have seen. Does any of this sound like the character of the rich man? And here's the obedient, faithful, and trusted servant Eleazar re reunited with his master Abraham. By using that one name, Lazarus, Jesus unlocks a deep backstory that the Pharisees could understand if their pride hasn't blinded them. The parable begins with a rich man wearing Armani purple, and the finest your linen. And every night he dines on takeout from Nobu. But every day he's forced to look at this gross leper 
who begs for scraps outside his gate. Ew. There's one thing that this leper has that the rich man doesn't, and that's a real friend. Someone cared enough about Lazarus to carry him there every day to beg. He was most certainly a leper too, but one whose legs still worked, and just as poor, or he'd have shared his food instead of lugging Lazarus around town. And then the next line. You know that friend who loves to tell stories and always adds in that one-liner that's so brutal that it's like a straight-on to the chest, and when you hear it, you can't help but go, ugh. Well, I am that friend, but apparently so is Jesus. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Ah. Talk about kibbles and bits. Ah. So, um, dogs were unclean to begin with. Dogs licking your leprous sores was sure to skeeve out the Pharisees. And then the tables are turned. They both die. And Lazarus takes a stretch limo ride with an angel escort to the Seven Seasons Resort to be with Father Abraham, who in Jewish tradition is the gatekeeper to the afterlife, much like Peter is for Christians. The rich man opens his eyes in a roach and bedbug-infested Motel 666 that's on fire. <laughs> and he calls out to Lazarus and Abraham in the distance. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Hello, Lazarus is standing right there. Notice that the rich man never addresses Lazarus directly. Even now, in the midst of torment, he sees Lazarus as a non-person, someone to be ignored or at best ordered around. This isn't a blind spot in his soul. It's a dead spot. He feels no guilt for ignoring Lazarus' plight all of those years. His whole life, he has trusted in his possessions, his stuff and it's made him callous and cruel like the people of Sodom. His stuff is the glory that he's created for himself, his weight, his gravitas, the thing that lets him say, I'm my own man. I'm sufficient in myself, and I don't need or even care about God or others. And so he ends up in this place that is separated from the people of God by a great gulf outside the camp because what he has is infectious. Father Abraham, then please send Lazarus to my family and warn them. The ice maker's broken. They never changed the sheets. And the thermostat won't go below 350. I'm in agony. Son, they have Moses and the prophets to warn them. The whole Old Testament. Oh, pshaw, that old relic? I guess it's okay if you need that kind of thing, but no one I know reads that anymore. Besides, who can understand it with all those these and thous in Hebrew? But a visit from a dead guy, that'll convince him. Son, a visit from a dead guy isn't going to cut it. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, then I got nothing for you. Abraham is pointing out the one thing that had the power to fix the rich man's soul if he'd chosen to listen. In this life, if we were cars, we'd be plug-in hybrids. We choose to tool around town on our own power, thinking we're doing great, but our power is a two-stroke weed whacker motor chugging blue smoke, when under the same hood are Tesla motors with ludicrous speed. All we have to do is show some humility, ask forgiveness, and then let Jesus charge our batteries with this book. That's the thing about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are perfect gentlemen. And they let us make our own decisions, good or bad. That Jiminy Cricket of conscience that we hear sometimes. Jiminy Cricket's not going to put you in a headlock and make you do the right thing. 
We always have a choice. If we plug in, God's word has endless, unimaginable power. It can terraform us back into beings that are native to his kingdom. Hebrews 4.12 says, His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. In Genesis, the universe was made by it. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Best of all, no greenhouse gases. It's the power of the sun. We may say to ourselves, good thing I don't have to worry about any of this, because I'm not rich. That's the funny thing about being rich. No one thinks they are, as long as they can point to somebody who has five bucks more than they do. So how do we steer clear of the rich man's fate? God gives us resources. He blesses us with them. So there must be a way to pass a camel through the eye of a needle for us to have stuff without stuff having us. There is a way. There are three keys in Scripture, starting with contentment. Ecclesiastes 4.6 says, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We can never be happy in the present if we spend every moment of the present plotting ways to have more in the future. Making a conscious decision to be content with what we have allows our brains to stop churning over what we don't have, and we can rest in that contentment. The next key is hope. Beware the bear trap of attaching your sense of self-worth to what you have. Are you hoping in your stuff or in God? 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Remind yourself every day that everything you have could pop like a soap bubble, but your relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal, and that's the thing to cultivate, because that's where your hope is. The third key is generosity. Being generous with people breaks us out of this world's mode, which says, what's mine is mine. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Giving sacrificially, oh, and Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Notice the word sacrifice. Giving sacrificially, more than just what we have left over, it hurts a little bit but it's supposed to. It keeps us humble and it builds our faith. It's boot camp for how we are to live in the next life. Every day, find a way to bless someone with your time or resources, and you'll never get caught up on that treadmill of chasing after the false happiness carrot hanging in front of you that you'll never catch. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says that the ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. The joy of the Lord comes from Jesus, and we can have it every day, no matter what's happening around us. 
Trusting in our stuff is an evil mirage. If you think you may be on this path, if you're uncertain whether you're in the camp or outside, stop, take a deep breath, turn to Jesus, and ask for his help. All day long, he holds his hands out to us. Grab those hands. Don't wait. Do it right now, because there is no better life than walking with the God who made us and loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I give thanks for today. I pray that your love is the, is the thing that we take away from today's message uh, as we've explored this tough and uncomfortable parable. Um, you bless us, you watch over us, you love us, and we give thanks in your name. Amen.